the summer before my senior year in high school, I was like the star football player to watch in the Lansing, Leavenworth, Kansas area, you know, which is a big deal. Um, and, uh, and I know it doesn't mean much in the real world, but that summer was probably the closest thing to celebrity that I've ever experienced. Um, there was five or six write-ups about me in the Leavenworth Times, our local newspaper. Uh, millennials, Gen Z and, and uh, millennials and Gen Z newspapers were these things that um, used to, it was our social media feed is what it was. Um, but I was like the player to watch uh, in, in a Kansas City Star article uh, even. Like it was a, it was, it was a big deal. And, uh, and it was weird for me because um, I didn't really think much about newspaper articles at the time or news really. Um, I was, you know, 17. I didn't think about news at all. Um, but all of a sudden, everywhere I went in town, whether it was Lansing or Leavenworth, people would recognize me. They'd be like, hey, aren't you Chris Heinzelman? Um, and at first I was like shocked and uncomfortable, but it didn't take long before I started to kind of enjoy the attention and bask in it a little bit. And, uh, and it went straight to my head. Um, I walked into the weight room all summer like I own the place, you know, like, do you know who I am? Um, <laughs> And, uh, and I still worked really hard, but if things didn't go my way or a rack wasn't open, I was like, hey, beat it. I'm Chris Heinzelman. You know, I'm in the paper. But, uh, but when the season started, I dove hard into two-a-days like a demigod, um, telling everybody what to do. And, and, uh, and I really did kind of step up as a leader because of all this. But, um, but I was enjoying the kind of low-level fame. Um, but then we rolled into our first game against Immaculata High School. We were a 4A school. They were a 3A Catholic school in Leavenworth. We were supposed to walk all over them. Like, that was, that was what was supposed to happen. And, uh, and we rolled into that game. It took my entire team to, like, carry my head onto the field. I was, I had such a big head. I was two or, or I was 6'3", 240 pounds of pretty fast muscle. And, uh, I felt pity on IMAC for having to deal with me. And, uh, and we won the toss. We deferred to the second half. So they got the, the, the ball at the beginning of the game, we kicked off to them, and I lined my 240-pound self up at inside linebacker, fully prepared to not only make every tackle in the game, but to hurt somebody doing it. And, uh, and the only thing I didn't account for was Juan Fry. Juan Fry was maybe 170 pounds, 180 pounds in his pads, soaking wet, um, and he played center. And if you know anything about football, 175-pound center is not very big. And uh, and we didn't have a nose guard. We played a, a two tackles, and and so Juan had no trouble getting to the second level to block the linebackers. I had 60 pounds on this guy. I should have crushed him, um, but Juan was well coached, and he had his coach had clearly read all the newspaper articles about me, knew that I was the one that needed to be stopped, and. Uh, Juan Fry came at me like an angry chihuahua. He was on my ankles and knees all night long. He just, he didn't even try to push me anywhere. He just like crab walked in front of my legs all night. Like, and, and, uh, and he did the job masterfully. Like, he never straight up blocked me. Um, he just chewed on my legs, knees and ankles all night and, and I could not make a play. I was so busy trying to look past him to the ball that I never really knew he was there until I was tripping over him, and it was driving me nuts. He had me so frustrated. I was, like, crying to the refs. I was like, get him off my knees, ref. Like, it got so bad, the ref was like, dude, stop crying. Like, play some football. Like, it was, it was bad. And uh, it was a rough night. And not only did we lose, but I had, like, four or five tackles all night, which is, was really low. Um, and, uh, 
Juan probably kicked my butt that night. Like, absolutely. We became buddies after that, actually. And, but he, uh, yeah, he, 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 uh, he ate my lunch all night long. And, and I had no trouble carrying my own head off the field that night. I didn't need any help. Um, he shrunk my head right back down to size. And, uh, and this really, that loss turned out to be kind of the best thing that could have happened to us because we got humbled right off the bat and we didn't lose another game um, until the state tournament at the end of the season. We, we kind of went back, regrouped, and got humbled um, by this 3A school. And by the time the college scouts started showing up, I, I was starting to live up at least to a little bit of the hype from summer, and I did get a scholarship. And, every, and it turned out to be a good thing that Juan kicked my butt that night. But pride is a weird thing. And this morning, Saint um, could test, certainly testify um, to that. This week is week one of our Saint series. Um, if you've never been here at Open Table in November, we do this kind of special thing this month. In high liturgical churches, uh, November 1st is All Saints Day. Um, which is why Halloween is is technically All Hallowed's Eve, All Saints Eve. Um, and so the next day is actually All Saints Day. Halloween is the Eve of All Saints Day. Um, and so they would celebrate November 1st. What we do here is basically stretch that holiday for the entire month. Um, each week of the month we take a different believer who has gone before us. Um, and every year we start by recognizing the pattern from the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. And we just kind of follow that same pattern. The writer wrote this. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth going through. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed by God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. It was by faith Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man, and God showed his approval for his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up into heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it's impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. It was by faith. Noah built a large boat and saved his family from the flood. He obeyed God. He warned him about things that had never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world. And he received the righteousness that comes by faith. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed God. And God called him to leave his home and go to another land and that God would give him as an inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land, God promised he lived there by faith. For he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the same promise, Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with an eternal foundation, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child, though she was barren and was too old. She believed that God would keep his promise. And so the whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead, a nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there's no way to count them. All the people died still believing that God had promised them. They did not receive that promise, but they saw it from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were, foreigner, that, that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they could call their own. If they had longed for a country that came from, they, they came from, they could have gone back. 
but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God. And he has prepared a city for them. It was by faith Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promise and was ready to sacrifice his own son Isaac, even though God told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God would be able to bring him back to life. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. It's by faith that Isaac promised a blessing for the future of his sons, Jacob and Esau. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones when he left. It was by faith Moses' parents hit him in for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given them an unusual child and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share in the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying a a fleeting pleasure, pleasure of sin. He thought it better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking ahead to a great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he had kept his eyes on the one who was invisible. It was by faith Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and speak of the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn sons. It was by faith the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as though they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. It was by faith the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. It was by faith Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God. For she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with, in, ruled with justice, received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, escaped death by the edge of the, edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back from the dead, but others were tortured, refused to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. So we're jeered at, and their backs, or some were jeered at, and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawn in half. Others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins and sheep uh, of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised, for God had something better in mind for us, so that they would not reach perfection without us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to this life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sins that so easily trip us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. This is the word of the Lord. So, we don't study these people um, just to recognize how cool they were um, and, and, and in any way make them like some kind of idol. But instead we look at their lives to see the impact faith can have on people. To encourage us 
to press on to the life of faith. And I have to be honest, Esther and I are still kind of reeling a little bit from last year's Saint series. We're still trying to figure out how to have faith like George Mueller. We talk about it constantly. We're still trying to figure out how to invite people into the simple but truly transformational reality of the gospel like Francis and Edith Schaefer did. It's not because these people were special. It's because the gospel is special. Amen? Well, this year um, is a little bit different because this year we decided to do all hymn writers. Um, So everybody we're doing this year is... uh, is somebody who, who left an impact with their art, with their music. Uh, so we've titled this series Key Change, Key Changes, um, which of course is a musical term in a song, usually at a really dramatic crescendo um, where it steps up a, 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 to a higher key. Um, and so if, if ever you listen to a song and you get like a crazy rush of goof, goosebumps out of nowhere, it was probably a key change. Like that's what key changes are designed for. They're like... There's a goosebump thing. Um, but, uh, but it's also a fun play on word because we're going to be talking about the role that these people's art played in changing them um, in changing the church and hopefully in changing us. Um, so before we dive in, um, I do need to mark kind of one cool historical fact about hymns. And actually, April um, touched on it a little bit. And hymn writers, because three of our four hymn writers... Um, really the three that aren't straight from the Bible, because we're going to do a, bi- a biblical hymn writer as well. Um, but they're all from the same era of history, um, and there's a reason for that. After the Reformation, Protestant um, churches became fixated on theology. Theology was a really big deal. Before that, uh, the Christian life was experienced was primarily experiential. It was about what you experienced. They, they experienced, um, the believer was to experience the life of Christ in the sacraments, in doing good deeds, you experience Christ, and then, especially in the Eucharist, which we call the communion table, they would experience Christ. So it was more just about the experience of Christ rather than, than the doctrines behind it. So after the Reformation, being a split that was kind of driven by theology and what you believe, um, the resulting Protestant churches were driven by accurate Bible teaching, um, which explains why in the first generation of reformers, there was already four denominations, because agreeing on exact right Bible interpretation is tough. Um, and so they were having a hard time agreeing on exactly what was perfect theology. But needless to say, um, what you believed became very, very important. Uh, but there was only one problem. Amongst the wealthy and noble people, theology was pretty easy to talk about and debate and read about. But among the lower classes, very few people were literate. Um, a really, really low literacy rate coming right out of the Reformation. Um, so spreading good theology was tough amongst the normal masses. Um, so one of the ways the average churchgoer learned theology was through hymns. They would write their theology into the music. The music would get stuck in your head and you'd find yourself singing and humming good Bible teaching um, throughout the day. So they would learn songs in church and then they would sing theology. Um, so in 1800, about 60% of total men in America, um, which means it was much lower because in the upper classes that was close to 100%, which means the lower classes, the skew pulls them way down. So in the, lo- in the working classes, much lower than 60% literacy. Um, so the majority of your average people didn't read yet. So even though the Bible's now in print, it's now in the common language, not many people can read it. Which is kind of interesting, because we make a big deal about reading your Bible on a regular basis. That's a pretty brand new concept. 
through the majority of the 2,000 years of church history, you couldn't read your Bible by yourself. Um, they didn't have them in print for a long time, and then once they did, it took a long time for literacy to catch up. That's really about only 150, 200-year-old practice. We used to have to read the Bible in community. You'd have to have somebody who had a copy and somebody who could read just to read your Bible, and that was pretty rare for a long time. So it's um, so the, the for the bulk of the 2,000 years of the church, you only really studied in community. You didn't really do that much by yourself. That's kind of a new thing. But uh, but in 1800, only 35% of total women and obviously much more in the upper class, so the working class, it was close to zero percent of women were literate. And so, um, so it's not a coincidence that most of the hymns come from that era um, because that was how you learned theology at that time. Um, and this week's saint is no exception. This is William Batchelder Bradbury. Um, not sure why we need the extra name, but uh, it's everywhere. But uh, William Bradbury was born in 1816 to an ordinary farming family. Um, and from a very young age, he loved singing. His parents loved singing, and so music was a big part of the house. Um, he grew up working the farm, and, and at age 14, his parents lost the farm, and they had to move into Boston. Uh, his father went to work in the city, and William went looking for a job, and he found a music store. And at, and at 14 years old, it was the first time he had ever heard a piano. Like, he sang his whole life, but he'd never heard somebody play the piano before until he was 14, and he immediately fell in love. He got a job at the... At the music store, he was smitten. Um, he worked um, uh, hard, but any chance he got, he tinkered on the piano and started teaching himself piano and organ um, any time he could. Any extra time went to learning. And uh, partially because of his passion for it and, and partially because um, he was actually building some skill, um, some of the new friends his family had made, people who, who uh, shopped at that music store, paid for him to go to music school when he turned 17. Basically, he went to a, like a music college, I guess he was what you'd call it now. Um, but he loved school. Quickly became noticed as, as kind of a special talent, um, which equally as quickly went to his head. He, was, he, he fully expected to be a musical prodigy. Um, there's a story of him coming home after being at school um, for just a semester or two, wanting to demonstrate his singing to his parents. And, and they were both really good singers, but, um, but they were a little old-fashioned. They had been trained. You stand very proper and you're straight-backed and, and you sing, you know, with good posture and stand very still. But I guess the style of the day while singing was to also conduct and get your arms into it as you were singing and, and to be more demonstrative. And so his arms were flowing and moving and his parents had never seen that kind of drama before, so they're, they're grinning and they're trying to be supportive, and finally they can't handle it, and they break up laughing, ask, asking him what all the dancing was about, and he got angry and slammed the door and stormed out of the room and said, you know nothing of music. And, and uh, so you can see the kind of like the intensity in this guy's personality. Well, his parents, who were um, uh, uh, supporting him, you know, did the best they could, but a break began to happen in the relationship just because he was so convinced he was going to be a star and that, uh, and that they, um, being farmers basically, uh, could never really attain his level. But he went back to school, continued to do well, and when he finished his courses, he got a job as a music teacher. And, uh, and kind of to announce his, his presence to the, to the, uh, in the new position, he, he put together his own concert. He was going to perform for everyone. 
Um, he made flyers and handed them out and hung them up and posted them and nobody showed up. Um, and while, but being like a true, uh, performer, he went ahead and did the concert for nobody. And like six people kind of walked by, like asked what on earth he was doing and kind of made fun of him and, and left. And so, um, so he's having trouble getting his talent to take. After his first year of teaching, um, he went home, married his uh, childhood sweetheart, and tried to find teaching jobs in Boston and couldn't. And so he moved to Brooklyn and got uh, a job as a music director um, at a small Baptist church in Brooklyn. Um, eventually, he moved to a much larger church, the Baptist Tabernacle in Brooklyn, and, uh, and continued to try to perform anywhere he could. And he just could not get anybody to come listen to him. And, uh, and so while he was teaching in the church as kind of a music director, just in his free time, he started uh, uh, free kids' music classes. Um, he would teach music to kids. And it became wildly successful. Um, he had tons of kids coming in for free classes. It became a big kind of draw to the church. And, uh, and eventually, after doing that for about a year, he put on um, this event that became known as the Annual Juvenile Music Festival. And the first year he put it on, he had a 1,000 kids on risers, all like in matching uh, blue and white uniforms, a big, huge spectacle. Thousands and thousands of people showed up to hear him sing. And it was quite a big deal, like uh, teaching these kids how to sing. Through this event, um, where he directed but did not perform at all, um, he gained quite a lot of celebrity. Um, he found himself in kind of a new class of people, uh, new friends, new connections, and uh, people started asking him for copies of the music they would perform. And so he would he started for the first time uh, to to write and print and publish music. He'd eventually go on to to, to publish 59 different songbooks and hymn books, mostly geared towards children and young people. Um, at this, at the same time that this is happening, the Sunday school movement is just really taking off in churches. They're doing Sunday school and they felt like what was missing was a musical element. And so the people kind of driving the Sunday school movement asked him if he would write music for Sunday school or print some of these books for Sunday school. And so he kind of became, for, for many years, like the Sunday school songwriter. Like he wrote pretty much all the music for the Sunday school movement, especially in the Baptist churches, um, for a, for a long time. Well, after finding some success as a music teacher um, and a writer, his books were pretty popular. He was selling books. Um, he finally decided it was time to make it as a singer. So in 1947, he traveled to Europe to uh, learn uh, vocals from the German masters as kind of a final attempt to jumpstart his career. Um, uh, and while in Europe, incidentally, he made friends with uh, Jenny Lind, who was kind of immortalized in The Greatest Showman. She's the one who P.T. Barnum brought to and toured around um, America. Um, he, he kind of became friends with her, so that kind of places where he is in the world. It means nothing to our sermon, but whatever. Um, but William was so convinced that, his, that he was talented that um, another just kind of peek into the way he works, he heard someone singing on the train when he was going through the Alps and not to be outdone, he stood up and gave like a mini concert for everybody in the trains because he didn't want uh, to be uh, shown up by uh, by somebody else just singing to themselves. And what's funny is the other guy came to him afterwards and was like, hey, can you teach me that first song you did? 
And he later said that was probably the most impact I had while in Europe, was teaching that one guy that one song. Um, but, uh, but while studying Europe, um, Brad really used almost all of his free time to go to the, the German music schools and see how they were teaching kids um, to sing and, and study their methods and what are they doing different. And, uh, and, it, and it, it was at this point that he started to realize what his true calling was and that it probably wasn't going to be to perform. So when he returned home, he went immediately back to teaching music to kids. And, and he threw himself fully into his, his children's choir, and uh, that became a huge deal. After, uh, or much later in life, he got tuberculosis, and he confessed to a friend that he thought death would be a relief. Um, he said that he loved Jesus and wanted nothing more in his life um, than to be closer to Jesus and do what Jesus wanted and to have an impact for Jesus. Um, but he said, my ambitious mind will not get out of the way. He said, he said every time I'm doing something, I, I want to be, um, I love teaching kids, but I can't help but want to be on stage. And, it, and it, it, uh, he said, I think death and Jesus' presence would be a relief from this constant, unrelenting pressure to be great. Um, but after his death in 1968, his wife wrote, um, that the only time he was ever really at peace in his life was when he was working with kids. Um, he had been to several churches, and she said he wasn't very sectarian. He didn't really uh, get too hung up on exact doctrine as long as the church had kids. If the church had kids that he could work with and teach to sing, um, he, would, uh, he, didn't, he wasn't super picky about any um, denominational camp. Um, but the week before he died, um, several hundred of his students showed up at his house um, and put on one last concert <laughs> for him. Gee, many Christmas. Um, but he died having lived a faithful life for Jesus. It's what he was most known for by the people who actually know him. He was remembered for being overly generous. There's a fun story of a college student writing him a letter and asking for $5. And uh, if he could borrow five dollars, and and he sent him back a letter saying, uh, unfortunately, right now I can't afford a five dollar loan, but I am sending twenty five dollars. Hopefully, that'll hold you over until I can come up with the five dollars to loan you. And it was it was supposed to be a joke. And he told his wife um, that he he added the the levity to the to the letter so that the guy wouldn't feel so embarrassed about having to ask for five dollars. He was trying to make it easier on the guy. And I guess that kind of thing happened often. Uh, he's also remembered for every um, church he went to, every place he ever worked. He had to have at least a closet, if not an office, for his quiet times. Um, he liked to lock himself in. He always had scripture stuck all over the wall in his quiet space. Um, and he, uh, he was known for, um, for his long devotionals and, and uh, memorizing psalms and reading scripture in that room, wherever he was. Uh, but in his own mind... He died a career failure. Um, all he ever wanted to be was a big-time performer, and, uh, and he never got that. He was never able to, to have the career that he had dreamed about since moving to Boston at 14. Um, he strove at every turn to make his dreams come true and just never succeeded. But as he confessed to his friend upon finding out that he had uh, TB, William had another dream that ran alongside that. And it was always that, um, that, that 
it competed. He told his friend, it always competed against my dream to be a performer. The other dream was to be close to Jesus and have an impact. And he said, I always thought I'd be able to do all of it. I'd be able to have a performing career, be close to Jesus, and have a huge impact. Um, but the dream to have an impact uh, lived all the way to today. Um, when my older kids were young, I was learning to play guitar. I was kind of consumed by it. And, uh, and so someone had taught me this little picking um, technique thing. And mostly because it was my job to put the kids to bed, and that was cutting into my guitar practicing time, I, uh, I found a way to combine the two. And so because finger picking is a little quieter and it helped the kids fall asleep, I used to, um, to sit while they were falling asleep and, and sing one of William Bradbury's songs to them. I didn't know it was one of William Bradbury's songs. Uh, that had nothing to do with why I sang it, but um, I used to sing this to my kids and now I often sing it to my grandkids, if you know it. So this was the picking technique that I, that I would learn over and over and over again. So if you know the song, you can sing along with me. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong, they are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. How many of you know that song? (laughs) How many kids do you think have sung that song? At least seven? Yeah, at least seven. I don't know, but William William Bradbury had an impact on my life. My kid's life. Now my grandkids' life. His dream was to have an impact on the world. We're teaching the kids downstairs. Um, you know, I, I gave them a list of, of 1840s, the most popular singers in 1840. I'd never heard of any of them. The kids, I, mean, I know I've never heard of any of them. We talked about the most popular songs in 1840. I'd never heard of any of them. Sweet Juanita was one of them. I've never heard of that. And, and yet... Over a hundred years later, who hasn't heard Jesus Loves Me? The hymn we sing during worship, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. William Bradbury wrote that. As well as a very special song that has impacted millions and millions. Billy Graham preached to billions of people. And it's an estimated 2.2 million people accepted Christ at Billy Graham's crusades. And the vast... majority of those people. <laughs> ADD's fun. I just had a memory. I took my older boys to Billy Graham. Because right when I started reading this, Josiah stepped around and I saw him through the corner. Josiah was young and when he, Billy gave the altar call and hundreds of people flooded. <laughs> Josiah lost it, which was really cool. But Almost every person who's ever come to the altar 
at a Billy Graham crusade. I don't know how many millions. They, they estimate 2.2 million um, got saved in his crusades. But they all walked down to the same song. Billy played the same song every time. Just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood <laughs> was shed for me. Hmm. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. The man who wanted nothing in life more than to, to stand before huge crowds in the middle of the spotlight and display his talent wrote that music that has been sung by billions and, and served as the theme song for 2.2 million people crossing from darkness to light. Bradbury's music and his love for Jesus changed a man full of pride to a man with a major impact. So how do we respond to this? Let me get rid of this. One of the things that um, I'd love to do during this series is to recognize the power of music. Especially the power of church music to change things. And the idea of changing pride to impact is maybe the perfect way to start talking about that reality. I mean, when you think about worship music, it's a weird thing. It's weird. This is a weird thing that we do. In 2023, when some of this like universal narcissism is at an all-time high, where the front-facing camera... The you do you, I'm going to get mine, I'm looking out for number one, seem to be the motto of the day. And where everyone um, is expected us, expects us to kind of bend to their desires, their understanding of reality. You know how countercultural it is to gather together with a bunch of other weirdos and sing about how amazing someone else is? That's not a normal thing. We purposely gather every week to say out loud, I'm not what's important. Jesus is what's important. And we may not even always mean it when we say it. And we're actually going to talk about that next week. But, but we believe it enough to actually gather and do it. And that's very weird today. It's a humbling thing to gather and say, I'm not the one to look at but I'll help point to the one to look at. But it's also the only thing that makes sense, right? Because when we see ourselves in light of the glory and grandeur of God, things come into proper perspective. Because one of the sneakiest deceptions the enemy, um, and boy, it's subtle, but one of the, the wickedest attacks he can try is to convince us that we are the main character of our story. And since we can only experience the world from a first person's perspective, it's a pretty easy sell. But the thing that I love about William Bradbury's story is that um, he struggled with that tension every day. He could either be the main character of his story, or God could. And ironically, the difference between those two realities was the difference between obscurity and genuine generational impact. Had Bradbury continued to fight to be the main character in his story, we would have never heard of him or his music. 
A hundred years later, no way. But against everything in his naturally selfish nature, he made God the main character of his story. And we continue to sing his music today. If worship music teaches us anything, it's that life lived for you is too small of a life. We think, we, we think all the time about, about what we want to do. It's like one of those questions we ask kids all the time at a really young age. What do you want to be when you grow up? You guys know that question. Younger people, you get that question a lot. What do you want to be when you grow up? Yeah. What we're asking is what job do you want to do? How do you want to make money? What I think we don't spend enough time asking is what kind of person do you want to be when you grow up? Not just what you want to do. What kind of person do you want to be? And that's a real question. Do you want to be kind when you grow up? Do you want to be honest when you grow up? Do you want to be a giving person? Do you want to be generous when you grow up? Do you want to be someone who leaves a legacy? Do you want to be a lifelong Jesus follower no matter what happens? Because here's the deal. You can't take those things for granted. You just assume you're going to be nice when you grow up. You just assume you're going to be generous and that, and that you're going to follow Jesus forever. But those things don't just happen on their own. I spent several years um, in the inner city as an inner city landlord, and I was awful at it. I was terrible. And the reason was I wanted to be a kind person, and I wanted to be an honest person, and I wanted to be a generous person. And the system was not set up for that. It was set up where you could only make money if you were not those things. And so I was really bad at my job. When we ask kids what they want to be when they grow up, the answer um, to that question comes with a plan attached to it. So if, if you want to be a doctor, then, well, you need to work hard in school, pay attention to school, get good grades so you can go to college and do well in college. And so we tell them the plan that comes with their dream. Honestly, I've been talking to guys who, who wanted to do construction. And I was like, you're going to need to get a little tougher. I don't know, maybe work out a little bit. It's hard work. Like, and, and, and you're going to need to, I mean, if, if you've ever poured concrete, it's, dude, work out first. Like, you're going to need to be in good shape. Like, it, it's, uh, you have to prepare for what you want to be. Being a kind person is no different. If you want to be a kind person your whole life, you better get yourself around kind people. Take notes. How do I be kinder? How do I be nicer to people? Practice taking your eyes off yourself. If, if you want to be generous, you have to start now because generosity doesn't show up when you've got something to be generous with. If you don't practice and set a plan to be generous and be a good person, it doesn't just happen on its own. You have to go to generosity college and get a degree so that you can be generous when you grow up. Jesus talked about this whole topic this way. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And He will give you everything else you need. Maybe we should start by asking kids that question. How do you plan to impact the kingdom when you grow up? And encourage them in their answers. I want to be a mechanic so I can do oil changes for widows. I want to be a businessman who can make lots of money so I can support ministries. I'm going to be a mom so I can raise godly kids. I want to teach church music to kids and write timeless hymns that they'll sing for generations. I don't know any other way to keep all this in perspective than to seek the, the kingdom first. Value your character over your, 
career. And I think worship is the best way to do that. To come in every single week and remind ourselves, this is not about me. I sing about somebody else. He's the, he's the star of the show. He's the main character in this story. Declaring out loud with everyone else, set to music, I want to see Jesus high and lifted up, shining in the light of his glory. Yes, I have a million things I want, but they pale in comparison to wanting Jesus to be glorified. It's like a weekly reset, a reminder that we are supposed to be about the kingdom. We aren't supposed to be the main character in our story. That's too small of a story. So the way that I'd love to respond to this message is to pretend you're a kid today. And you just got to ask that golden question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Maybe ask yourself the, the, the question, am I, am I the kind person that I want to be? Am I the, the encouraging person I want to be? Am, am I the, the giving person that I want to be? Am I seeking the kingdom first? And be honest. Self-deception doesn't help. Just be honest. Take that to God. If the answer is no, wrestle with it. What do I need to do? Where do I, what's step number one to becoming the kind person I want to be? What's step number one to becoming the encourager I want to be? Because that's how we have impact. Not by focusing on ourselves. So as we gather around the table and as we sing this old, beautiful song written by William Bradbury. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you move out of the spotlight of your own story and into the crowd, applauding the the Savior with all the other saints.